the structure of political opportunity is actually Welcome to the New Pathways podcast. I am J.V. Hampton Van Sant, and I'm happy to welcome you back to our ongoing New Pathways Labs. These are conversations um, that were hosted by Gwendolyn Hampton Van Sant and moderated by Ashante Renee. And today, specifically, we have the lab that occurred on May 22nd. One of there were it was one of three, no, one of two that occurred that day. And this one is strategies for locals and sustainable economies. This was a dynamic talk on food justice and the local economy. Our panelists for this conversation were Jen Salinetti of Woven Roots, Greg Watson of the Schumacher Center for New Economics, Anna Gilbert Muhammad from NOFA Mass, the Northeastern Organic Farmer Association, and Dr. Chenzira Kahina from the UVI Cultural Center. Before you give this a listen, we recommend that you go and watch Jen Salinetti's New Pathways Talks. If you look in the description for this episode, you will find it there. There's a lot of very valuable information in this conversation, and we look forward to giving that to you. As always, the first section of this is our presenters discussing, and the second half of this, um, which you will hear sort of prompted by Shantae a, a Renee, um, you will hear the report outs from our breakthrough sessions. Enjoy! So first up, I was going to have um, Jen speak because she was the pathway speaker, and then we'll go on to the next person. So Jen, we're going to time you. Um, you have, uh, Donya, we give people four minutes, and then you get a warning over your chat that you've got a minute left. All right? And then we'll start waving our, at you. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Okay. Thank you, everyone. It's really a tremendous honor to be able to share space with you today um, and to be focused on this particular um, subject matter with all of you. It's um, been a tremendous gift to be able to be spending time working with Gwendolyn and Multicultural Bridge really intimately. I've been involved as a, a volunteer and in um, many different ways with Bridge for years, but uh, Gwendolyn and I, as a response to COVID-19, stepped into um, a really energetic, dynamic um, pathway uh, rather quickly. And, um, and it was something that we had been talking about working on for a couple of years. And the call to action became very real in the moment. And um, we're proud to be piloting an initiative that we see to be formidable um, both now and well into the future. So I'll talk a little bit um, about what we're doing um, with Multicultural Bridge and um, how it stems from the 20 years of farming 
that I have been um, participating in here in the Berkshires. Um, there has been, um, the, uh, as Sarah had mentioned, we have a, we're 10 years into having a CSA program, a community supported agriculture program. And so this um, initiative is stemming from that. Um, we have a solidarity share fund that has been established for many years, initiated through um, Berkshire Grown originally and has grown um, in number quite a bit. And so that has always been our way to create um, access, um, more direct food access for people in need. And I felt like we needed to magnify that. It was time to magnify it. So Gwendolyn and I um, have, based on understanding the um, both individual and collective needs and interests of uh, marginalized community members here in the Berkshires. We have developed uh, a program that um, elaborates on our CSA food access. So that is a program that runs from mid-June all the way through November, a weekly access of fresh seasonal um, completely crafted by hand and intimately connected with the earth. And, um, and then we are taking um, the next step to be able to provide uh, vegetable starter kits and um, through the Cooperative Seed Garden Commission, uh, we gained access to a tremendous amount of seeds that we're gonna be um, sharing with Bridge community members. We are also um, working with Greenagers and Will Conklin, who's the director of Greenagers, is here with us today. And so I reached out to him so that we could be able to um, not just work with people that had established gardens, but help to create new raised beds and garden spaces through the Front Lawn Food Program. And um, in addition to that, we are going to be, we are offering um, monthly educational experiences with Bridge community members. So we're doing uh, classes on gardening and cooking and food preservation throughout the year. And um, Anna Muhammad, who I work really closely with um, on the NOFA Mass, uh, in Nova Mass, uh, she and I, um, she, Anna actually helped me really directly with uh, understanding what it would mean to put together a regular series like this, um, particularly if we're going to be doing this completely over the web. And um, so Anna is coming in um, as equity director and um, serious uh, gardener and community organizer to be also working on these um, these meetings, meetups, and um, resilient skill, skill sharing together. So um, that kind of summarizes what we're doing. I would say that, you know, I recognize um, from the get-go that, you know, everything that we do um, here at Woven Roots Farm is always better when it is done in relationship to others and, um, and our impact is magnified. Um, significantly by working with a number of different collaborators in this um, partnership today. And so I think that is the message that keeps coming back to me um, of what our, what our community impact can be when we really step into working together. Um, it's a message that I hear and learn from the soil on a regular 
basis. I see our interconnectedness, our diversity, our reciprocity, our generosity, and that is how our farm is, has been able to thrive. And, um, and I take those lessons with me every day and turn them into action within the community. And so it's really exciting to be able to share this example with all of you. All right. Ooh, thank you. Yeah. Anna, thanks for joining us and bridging the bridging our region. So you're up next. Yes, yes. Well, first of all, thank you for such an honor to be with such a wonderful group of people. You all are doing amazing work and it is definitely an honor. And I got to give a shout out to Jen. She um, is on the board of NOFA Mass and she works with me with NOFA Mass's Equity and Inclusion Committee. She's helped me really shape a lot of the work that we're doing in Springfield and other parts of the state. And um, we have done work in Boston and in Worcester, but my, a lot of my work primarily is in Springfield. And after seeing her video and thinking about how COVID has really, uh, you know, just to be real, ravaged um, a lot of uh, black and brown communities, it, the call to action uh, just was really real and quick and fast. And although with the projects that we've been working with in Springfield so far um, that have helped create self-determination around what we eat, uh, what's available to us, we had to kick it up a notch. So with the projects that NOFA Mass has been working with, uh, it's a new way of looking at food access. It's um, not so much just giving out food, but helping families create that food access for themselves through growing their own food. So our first one at uh, Home City Housing, um, it is a grouping of low-income housing units that are in part of the north end of Springfield, which is mostly um, uh, Latino. Uh, the Mason Square area, Tap the Court Apartments, where our garden is located, which is mostly uh, black and brown, and then Twigs 1 and 2, they're scattered sites. We service over 140 families with that garden. And over the past couple of years, we've grown uh, 15 100 to 2,500 pounds of food, all of which the families get a chance to partake in. And what is powerful about that is that their youth leaders run that garden. We do classes with them, but they harvest the food. They make sure the food gets to where it needs to go. And so they have a direct link in servicing and making sure that their families, as well as the rest of the families, are able to have access to healthy and nutritious food. And in the areas that these uh, housing developments are located, you know, you, you've got a fast food restaurant on, on every corner. Mickey D's, or we call it MacDeath, KFC on another one, <laughs> Wendy's somewhere else. I mean, they're literally just a, a block down the street. And so having that access to healthy food, um, it, it's not so easy. You know, your nearest supermarket, a stop and shop, you know, it's 30, 40 minute bus ride. Um, Whole Foods or Whole Check, that's way out the way somewhere. So being able to create that level of self-determination over what you have a right to eat, uh, it has been huge. And watching the youth take ownership of it as we go into our fourth year with that program has been a blessing to see. And so it's taking that model of food access and really putting it in the hands of the families where they do it for themselves. And then working with partnerships. Um, now we've been working with gardening the community to get emergency food shares to families who need it right away while we're putting the garden in place. Um, and that's been a wonderful partnership. We get eight to 10 bags of produce bags each week 
to those families. So now we're working in partnership, that mutual aid um, that Jen mentioned. Again, it's we're weaving our own self-determination around the food that we eat. And then lastly, from a nutrition standpoint, because again, there may be food available. That's the definition uh, to a certain degree of a food desert, but what kind of food is it? What's the quality of food? And many of us are being affected by COVID because of pre-existing conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, um, things like that that have ill affected our health already. We've developed a wonderful relationship with the Springfield Health Department, Open Pantry, and um, Friends of the Homeless to do programming around gardening and nutrition, particularly around diabetes management. So again, everything we're doing is creating that whole new view of what food access should be about, and that as a community, we're helping each other grow our own food. So it's an honor to be able to talk a little bit about our projects and be able to work with Jen on some of these things. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing. So we're up with Greg. Well, thank you all. It's, it's really great being here. And I've taken sort of a different a little bit of a different trek here. I want to uh, talk about um, the development of tools for systemic change. I mean, my title is Director of Policy, and what has I got to do anything in system design? What does that mean? Well, um, I spent, even before uh, Dudley Street, I spent a number of years at a place called the New Alchemy Institute, which got me down here to Cape Cod. And New Alchemy was a grassroots um, um, hippie organization, to be honest with you, that was developing... Uh, alternative tools back in the 70s and 80s in response to back then the first Earth Day, which is 1970, right? And at that time, um, most organizing efforts focus on um, what was wrong with the system. And I think we are all aware now of the systems that are broken, that don't serve us, serve obviously very few. But we were protesting what was wrong. Uh, the New Alchemy Institute was a bunch of researchers, scientists, or, uh, organizers, uh, writers, poets, um, and we decided that we wanted to focus on developing um, the alternatives. W what takes the place of the things that aren't working? And so the focus was on meeting basic needs, food, energy, and shelter. So we, ex we did the explorations in organic agriculture, aquaculture, we uh, passive solar architecture, um, and um, the idea was to do these differently, to use nature as a basis for design, and we began integrating these tools. Right now, I guess, you know, it's a state-of-the-art aqua aquaponics. People understand, at least some people do, is the integration of aquaculture and agriculture systems and passive solar um, designs where the byproducts of the fish system, the fish waste become nutrients, become a rich resource when you combine them with the right type of system. So we're looking at that as, 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 as at least I've been looking at that as the tools, subversive tools for creating systemic change and then communicating back to folks, organizers and residents of the impact that these tools have actually had. I mean, we, sometimes we, we're busy organizing and we do things, we have successes, but we we don't communicate back to folks. We don't celebrate the successes and explain, in some cases, the, the true impact that their actions have had. And just real quick examples of, I'm gonna use both the farmer's markets and, and, and Dudley Street. Um, in 78, I was actually an organizer, and I am an organizer by heart. That's what I do, organize. I, and and um, in 1978, in response to the state's 
alarm over the loss of farmland and farmers in Massachusetts. We were losing farms and farmland at an amazing rate beginning at the end of the Second World War, right up to the 70s. And most people had written off agriculture in Massachusetts. They said, well, we'll be high tech. And so what if we import our food from California, South America? It doesn't make any difference. Gasoline prices were, were pretty cheap back then. So there was this cavalier attitude about us relying on anybody else for our, for our food. Fortunately, the commissioner back then, Fred Winthrop, commissioned a group and said, look, we've got to figure out what we can do as a state. Let's pretend the feds aren't here. Let's pretend that, you know, there's, there's, there's no corporate help. What can we do as a state to save ag our agricultural sector? A bunch of things were proposed, including the preservation, the Agricultural Preservation Act, which, per, you know, purchased the development rights of farms are being threatened by development. And that's been a hundred million dollar project over the years that have put land and permanent agriculture, right? So we, we purchased the development right, put the easements on, that's been successful. But direct marketing, farmers markets, that was back then, that was a, that was a, an, a revelation. It was an innovation. People had forgotten about and making the direct contact between consumers and, and producers and cutting out all those middle people who are reaping all the profits and benefits at the expense of the two folks at the, at the end the people who are producing the food and the people that are consuming. Farmers market, simplest, one of the simplest marketing, the simplest marketing strategy, but it was difficult back then to get it up and going. There was resistance from, you can probably well imagine, right? The well-established. But once it was done, we realized that there were some, um, what do we, the, the, there were things that we hadn't predicted, right? There were the, the what's the, the unintended consequences of our actions at the farmers markets. But what we discovered was that almost every unintended consequence was good. It wasn't bad. They were beneficial. The design of the markets was done right. And for instance, one, one benefit was the fact that because we provided farmers with an option to retail instead of wholesale, their, their only option for the most part was to go to the wholesale market. The wholesale market said, bring me, make it simple for me, bring me one or two crops. I don't want to see a, whole, you know, a, a basket of this, a basket of that, basket of that. If we're going to deal with you, you're going to bring me in a truckload of potatoes, a truckload of cabbage. And, and so it encouraged monoculture. The marketing system encouraged monoculture by providing an option, an option to retail where farmers actually did better if they had a variety of crops to offer as opposed to just one, we gave them a, an economic incentive to diversify, if you understand what I'm saying. And so th there were those sorts of ripple effects that we hadn't anticipated that were, that were truly systemic. And we gave folks another option. Didn't have to do it, but it was an option. And so what I do now is try to look at how um, our actions actually do have the potential to bring about systemic change. And I'm gonna end with the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. And if folks aren't familiar with that, it is the, the, one of the most incredible experiments in community planning the country has ever seen, where a grassroots or um, grassroots multicultural neighborhood, Cape Verdean, Latino, white, black, right in the heart, literally in the heart of Boston, Roxbury and Dorchester. And if you look at the map, it even looks like a heart, access to the Southeast Expressway, airport, and whatever. But it was a low income, you know, white flight GI Bill that people of color could not take advantage of, right? People went to the split to the suburbs and this community was left and they were all diversified. I mean, multicultural, the one thing we had in common 
they had in common, I was an outsider actually, when I came as executive director, they were all poor and they were all suffering from a, a, you know, a racism, disinvestment, neglect, arson for profit, things were happening. Um, the community seized control. I, I won't, can't get into all the detail, but my God bless Mel King. And if people don't know who Mel King is, Mel King, uh, organizer, MIT professor, urban department, but he provided some guidance, and, and, but it was really the residents who took control were able to convince the mayor of Boston uh, uh, to grant them the power of eminent domain over all a vacant, van, vacant abandoned land in their community. And there was lots of it. I mean, the place was pretty much burned to the ground as landlords, slumlords, tried to collect as much insurance as they could when they saw that urban renewal wasn't gonna happen. The community organized themselves into a democratic organization, elected board of directors, and what they did, now I'm gonna end on this and we can, maybe it can be a discussion, but they turned the notion that you cannot have gentrification without displacement in neighborhoods. This, this notion of gentrification, we've got to decouple gentrification and displacement. Gentrification, at least rising, you know, increasing the economic um, development in the community is something that people want. What people feared was the fact that if I'm a low-income community, people come in, build up the community, raise the taxes, what it's gonna mean is, I'm no longer gonna be able to live here. And all I can tell you is that Dudley Street did, the, the, the Latino, Black, Cape Verdean, white residents did what no professional planners and developers were able to do and even conceive of a way of avoiding that conundrum of displacement after gentrification. They did it. And I'm gonna end on that. And so what we, what we wanna do, what I'm doing now, is collecting that experience not only just mine, but others, and now translating that into ways that we understand enough of the details so and it, that we're responsible for creating the systemic change. Thank you so much for that. Um, uh, Dr. Chen. First and foremost, it's really uh, an honor and a privilege to even be part of the Berkshire community from Caribbean South South. We here in the Virgin Islands have endured a number of different things over the last few years. So while we're challenged slash navigating opportunities through COVID-19 and really moving with a vibration of prevention beyond fear, we are still recovering literally from two category five hurricanes, Irma and Maria 2017. And being a extension as a non-incorporated, non-self-governing territory of the United States, it makes some of the support and engagements very difficult to navigate through. So while persons are still masking and dealing with the hand washing and the social distancing, which we prefer to refer to as physical distancing, like other persons, because we don't want to lose our humanitarian engagement in the midst of covering up and being safe, we've been also challenged with some, <laughs> say it gently, with some equity issues, right? And some acceptance and, diverse, and diversity affairs. You know, we have a very multicultural community while it is predominantly people of African ancestry. We have a large population of persons that do not speak solely English. You know, there's a large population of Spanish speakers here as well as Creole and uh, French speakers here. 
we have a large community of, of Muslims that are speaking Arabic as well. And for those persons that may be familiar with that vibration, especially in a small 84 square miles for St. Croix, 32 square miles for St. Thomas, 19 square miles for St. John, it becomes difficult when we start to deal with things like the journey through community development. So a couple of things I just would like to highlight on is that we've been revamping and utilizing these virtual networks. And then some people keeping the mask on, we meet at the beach and have these soirees around fires, which are kind of cute, so that we can actually talk about preservation issues and we can talk about housing development. We can speak to how are we handling the increase in criminality, which we anticipated because you have persons that are staying in homes that are not really homes and they don't really have options. And there's a lot of persons that are able to come here and live very comfortable, very well, you know, very affluent. And then there are those, there's not, our middle class is really waning because a number of things have changed, you know. So between having an oil refinery here on the island of St. Croix at a time where persons did not desire that, being proactive and committed stewards, trailblazers to some, probably mavericks to others, it's been a resurgence of how we embrace our, our healthcare situations, which had been compromised even before the hurricanes. They were really strapped during the hurricanes and post-hurricane or Maria. And then in the midst of recovery, while our hospital here on St. Croix is still in construction, then the COVID piece manifested. So it's just been like layers after layers after layers of challenges that rework of just realities that some people can manage and then some people cannot. So there's been a significant amount of flight outward and then there's also been a significant amount of flight inward. While we were, the refinery was bringing in thousands of people to keep their operations in check. And so that too created another layer of inequity in areas of healthcare and areas of not even affordable housing. I'll just say housing period. You know, most of the realities here were uh, just complementary to what every, you know, how everything else manifested. So we've had a fusion where we've used cultural heritage legacy activities and holistic healing narratives to be able to even reach people to have a conversation to shift the energy, to shift the conversation. So it wasn't just everybody's going to die, doom and gloom is the end of the world that kind of you know apocalyptic space because we've had that reality whereas people have taken their lives young people and not so young people wasn't a lot but for our community it was significant because it's people that we know and this extended to some of the efforts that we've been doing so i want to shift some of the efforts that happened with the university in particular is of course we did everything online however in doing that we overlooked that we have several, you know, we have a large population of learners that are more accustomed to traditional direct face-to-face -face, need to feel their professors and engage with their, with their peers, student learners. So this new Zoom for everything or Skype for everything became difficult. And as we just experienced, 
in the Caribbean, sometimes you don't have the most uh, stable internet services, period. And that's pre and post hurricane or disaster. So that's another reality that we've been working through in terms of just strengthening, strengthening our capacity building around technology. So that's another piece that we highlighted. So part of the talking points that I desired to share with you were around how we've been dealing with just transformations of what we refer to as mother culture, because we, we're embracing all of these different cultural threads that make up the Virgin Islands. And at the same time, making sure that we respect the native indigenous ancestral core that's here, you know, without, which is not always the easiest thing to do. It's like a six way chess game. So you're playing literally six different navigation spaces. So we've been working on that so that we can actually restore a wealthy, healthy, make sure I say that wealthy and a healthy prosperous type of interaction with one another. We've used bambulas, and I will briefly mention that bambulas are known as a dance communication, like a tea meeting, where elders and youth will gather. I'll, I'll equate it, it's very similar to a powwow amongst Native Amerindians. And here it allows us to actually, you know, eat together, uh, reason together, and to share reports of what's happening in each village or in each part of the island. So we've used that as another strategy to at least reach out to people that may not have had an opportunity to really give their narrative around how important it is for us to develop sustainable economic programs here in the Virgin Islands and to make it so that it is resilient and to make sure that we don't harm ourselves. One second so that we don't harm ourselves in the midst of this process. The last point I would like to highlight is that we've worked with a number of different non-governmental organizations in the Caribbean region, as well as in the Americas. So we're very I'm very excited to be able to be part of what you all are doing, what we're doing in terms of community development and, and how to make it sustainable and keep it respectful to persons, spiritual, cultural, vibrations and energies and perspectives and inclusive because that's something that we've been navigating through here quite recently we, you know we've had we've had our challenges like everywhere else however what we're doing are utilizing different different eclectic strategies around smart growth techniques we have an organization called St. Croix Unified for Community Culture environment and economic development. And what that does is bring together a wide net of organizations so that we can hear the different voices and we can speak to you know, sustainable development around agriculture, agribusiness, what's going on in education. We have a very strong arts and culture sector. And then of course the small business development sector and how do we get the larger corporations to, not so much, we used to use the term buy-in, but what we say here is make it so, like M-E-K-I-T-S-O, make it so. If you're here benefiting and becoming a multi-millionaire, well now billionaire from the resources in the Virgin Islands, then there has to be an equitable exchange in terms of, you cannot see all of this play going on and not contribute to the healing and the wellness of that. So it's not like we shame them to death. We just tell them make it so, you know? <laughs> so we, we're, we're working on how to, 
navigate that again, you know, through very technical, you know, strategic programs and brain trust development and charrettes and so forth. And doing it through a virtual space has been a little bit different because here, like, you know, we're still human. We're used to talking to people and people seeing their emotions and facial expression and so forth. So sometimes it doesn't work in, in certain sections, but in other times we've been very successful in working around areas around public education, public policy, community planning, and uh, keeping the sustainable development piece at the focus. So there were, you know, as we reason later, I can, if there's a desire to know, there's like other things that we've done in between that have helped us to really work with some of our agricultural stewards. And we've worked very closely with some of the entities like even the National Park Service, in addition to other nonprofit consortium that is here. And our nonprofit consortium is working through the St. Croix Community Foundation. In St. Thomas, there's also the Community Foundation for the Virgin Islands. And I wouldn't say that they're separate, separate. It's just that here in St. Croix, it's more agrarian. It's more like what you see in the back of me than it is urban and, and citified, right? Not the city isn't as bad. But I'm just saying that it's more rural and more person-to-person -person linkages here in St. Croix, as well as in St. John, which is, has its own other challenges. So I would like to leave it there because I just desire for you to just kind of get a feel that, you know, we are doing things around this, this geotourism, which in this new zone, it's shifted to just earth balance tourism, which is something that we're working on so that we can make sure that it's not that we don't want tourists. It's not that we don't desire development. We just like it to be human focused, human centered and inclusive. So Ashanti, you're up for questions for our panelists things I am hearing come up from everyone. First, thank you all so much for sharing your experiences, your, your stories, your knowledge, your wisdom. And I'm seeing how all of this is connected right now. Like all of it is interconnected right now. Um, and I'm hearing two very key themes come out of what everyone has shared. One being a focus on sustainability and the other being shared strategy. And so sustainability being if you give someone a tomato, you feed them for a day. If you teach someone how to garden, you feed them for a lifetime, right? And so, and it's kind of shifted that. I was like, tomato, not fish. Got it. <laughs> uh, we had to shift that around. I like that. <laughs> um, around shared strategy. Um, what Greg is talking about, uh, what's happening in the Virgin Islands, how all of, like, if you learn a strategy or work a strategy in one area, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You can utilize and repurpose that strategy in all different types of communities that are connected to or that are being impacted by gentrification and what that means and what that looks like. And so I want to unpack those two themes uh, a little bit right now. Um, and so my first question is more on the, I'd, I would love for, and I believe it was Jen and Anna to say, is it Anna or Anna? It's Anna. I say Anna. Anna. Yeah. Either one is fine, but most people do say Anna, so that's fine. Right. <laughs> what does your mom say? My name is Ashante, so I'm very big on getting people's names correct. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what she calls me, but she does say <laughs> Anna. <laughs> okay, I'm going to honor Mama and say Anna. Um, I would love to hear more from Jen and Anna um, about, like, I want y'all to dig a little bit more into mm -hmm. equipping communities around that self-determination 
mm-hmm. over what we have a right to eat. Because in a mm-hmm. lot of communities, we are, the choice is given for us. And mm-hmm. so how do you utilize or leverage or exercise or activate that power of self-determination when mm-hmm. it comes to like what you can eat and what you have access to? And if you don't have access, create your own. I would love for y'all mm-hmm. to drill down into that a little bit more for us. And like mm-hmm. what that looks like practically. We're in the action part of, mm-hmm. of like what does that actually mean for mm-hmm. where you are? Okay. Mm-hmm. Jen, um, I, I'll defer to you to start, then I can back you up after that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think actually what you're bringing up is exactly what um, led Gwendolyn and I into um, seeing the fullness of this initiative because. Um, to your point, you know, there, there is an actual um, purpose and need to be able to provide, you know, food um, in the moment. Everybody has that. It's a, it's an undeniable human right mm-hmm. that we just have access to food, but that we have access to clean, vibrant, healthy, nutritious food. And so, um, but there, there are absolutely limitations within that. You know, I think in my in my um, heart of hearts, I think about what um, what we are activating here at Woven Roots Farm and have been for um, a long time, being able to work with a small piece of land and create an incredible amount of food. Um, on an acre and a half of land, we're feeding over 500 fit people a week easily. And so, um, and so that is something, you know, that uh, is um, very small scale. And I see this, um, this working as more and more small spaces are developing into these really, um, this, this fullness of growth. And it takes a certain level of um, skill sharing that require that is required in order for us to be able to grow that um, both in concept and in um, and in place and so you know putting um, the access of food as well as the um, the knowledge of how to be able to um, develop that self determination de- develop that resiliency within so that we don't have to rely on those unbelievably broken systems that ha- were designed to mm-hmm. keep you know uh, many of us out of it um you know mm-hmm. intentional you know and so we that we're we're bringing we're coming back to um to our to our own knowledge to our ancestral wisdom to our own um capacity to be able to take care of ourselves to look at our neighbors and say you know we are in this together and Mm -hmm. you know i might not be able to grow everything you might not be able to grow everything but if we do this together we'll be able to provide for for ourselves and for our community in in a way that is um that is both um, resilient and and just and really empowering, you know, and mm-hmm. having that ability to um, to bring that level of empowerment comes through the ongoing personal education, comes through the learning from the mistakes of one another, and really being willing to um, to offer that uh, as a growing point with each other. Mm-hmm. And really just to dive deeper into that, the whole um, piece about empowerment, youth are a very uh, large part of that. And so with the work that's been happening in Springfield kind of happened very organically um, because it was really used as part of their training program at Home City Housing. But as we started to delve more into that ancient knowledge and the history 
so that for many of us as people of color, we have a very, very traumatic uh, relationship with any form of agriculture, whether it be gardening, whether, you know, we start thinking about sharecropping and slavery, but we had to take it into that our work with agriculture did not start there. Um, yes, we came with certain knowledge, and it's that knowledge that we revert, revert back to, to grow food, to develop the systems, a better system of working together. And so from an action standpoint, the youth play a very, very important role, because now they begin to see that they're that change maker, that they have the ability to say, you know what, we're going to disrupt this current system that's not serving anybody and has never served us and create a whole new system that is based on mutual aid, that's based on reciprocity, that's based on the level of love and trust between one another. And so with that particular project, and then also bringing in the intergenerational piece where we're working with our elders in the different housing developments at Friends of the Homeless. I mean, that's a homeless shelter but they're taking responsibility, even in the condition, in their living condition to say, you know what, we are experiencing some health challenges. Why don't we try to correct this ourselves and not wait for someone to feed us something that really is not to our health benefit. So watching, these, watching communities come together around food and producing their own food. Uh, Shante, I really love the piece with the tomato because that's exactly what we're doing. Um, we're not just giving the tomato, but they're saying, you know what, we'll take the tomato, but we're gonna get the knowledge so we can grow our own and everybody can have a tomato forever. And so from that action piece, we're, and it's new, we're growing it um, and then making the linkage. This, this particular form is very empowering because oftentimes we get placed in silos, right? I'm from Boston, I'm from Worcester. And we forget, no, we're one. And what's happening in Springfield is happening in the Berkshires, it's happening in, the Worcester, in Worcester and in Boston. We are all struggling. And, but together we can unify. Our unity is as strong as an atomic bomb. And so I, I appreciate this because we see that we can bridge this gap between all parts of Western Mass and across the state. So. That's kind of the, the action portion. I hope that that answered your question. Yes, and then produce six more. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so seriously, no, I have three more questions from that. But I want I to transition because I want to make sure I get all the other pieces in here and I bridge that gap between the sustainability and the, the shared access and shared strategy. So... Greg, I know, I know I wasn't the only one that you, when you said, when you uh, referenced that one community that they decided they weren't going to do gentrification like everyone else. I was like, so what did they, what did they do? Like we, <laughs> I don't, a few of us were like, what actually happened? Yeah. Um, so in answering that question, I want to take what was shared by Jen and Anna and I want to ask this. So, cause you've said before, gentrification doesn't necessarily have to mean displacement. So if gentrification doesn't mean displacement, how do we leverage gentrification to build um, self-determined access? Like how, how do we leverage what's happening there to, to build access? And so if you can speak to that, uh, specifically by that group that you're, you're, or that community that you're observing, what did they do? And I'm sure the answers there can funnel into what's happening with, uh, it's Chinzira? Okay, yes. uh, what's happening in the Virgin Islands with Chinzira? And that's a way to transition into to her next. Yeah, I will, let me just say that I think that uh, 
the key, and the, the group is the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, um, and um, it centers around Dudley Street in Roxbury. The, a, a couple of things. The, the first thing they did was be strategized to gain access to the land. Wealth is derived from the land. You, that's where it all begins. They wanted more than just to be able to rent them. They want to control the land. And let me just say that we, we need to be cognizant and careful so that we can take, um, make the distinction between a special case and the general principles that we derive from that, if you know what I mean. Again, here's a particular case, and it's got very specific things, but, and if, if you get too fixated on them, you might say, well, I could never do that because I didn't have that. What you've got to do is say, what's the essence of what they did for it? Because the situation in Roxbury was such that, oh, this was during court-ordered busing, there was racial tension. Um, Ray Flynn was running for mayor of, 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 was elected mayor of Boston against Mel King, who, I'm, who I mentioned before, the first black mayoral candidate to run for office, and he was defeated. Um, Ray Flynn felt that in, because the, the, the election was so contentious that he lost the support or, of the black community because of the nature of the, really, the, the, the race with Mel King. And so when, when the situation evolved where the neighborhood that the Dudley Street neighborhood had been identified for urban renewal. Now, I'm old. And back in those days, urban renewal was Negro removal. That's how we, we didn't, when you talk about urban renewal, what you're talking about is marinas, condominiums, um, location, location, location. And that's what the neighborhood had before the white flight. And so the neighborhood resisted urban renewal. And particularly one woman, Shay Madgen, got up and was vociferous about, I don't, see us in, I don't see us in this future that you're presenting here. And so the project was halted. Now this is where things cascade. The halting of the project, that's what prompted the slumlords who are hanging onto this land, doing minimal amount of maintenance or anything on these buildings because they were waiting to cash in from urban renewal. The city wants this land. When they're ready to build, we're going to sell it to them and we're going to reap the profits. When the community held up the project, many of these slumlords torched their buildings. They burned them to collect insurance. They just said, we're going to minimize our losses now. You're not going to build. And the neighborhood was, was turned to rubble. It looked like you were in a war zone. I'm, I'm just doing this real quick, but I'm doing it carefully. And when and it became a sty. People were dumping at night. They said, why would I go to a dump and pay a tipping fee? They drive by, look at the neighbor and said, I'm coming back tonight and I'll just dump and I'll just dump and I'll just, and that's what happened. The neighborhood was in ruins. It was a health hazard. And the mayor then said, okay, we got to do something about this. And he said, I will neighborhood organize. We're going to clean up. He said, I will give you anything you need trying to win back the black support. Tell me what you need. Do you need plastic bags? You need rakes, you need to clean up. The neighborhood had consulted with some really savvy people, you know, and one of them, a couple of them were lawyers and said, you gotta get access to the land. And they went to the mayor and said, we'd like the power of eminent domain over all abandoned vacant land. Wow. And because here, no, no nonprofit community organization had ever been granted that. Never. Um, and because of the, I'm just describing, because of the situation, right, the, the politics, the mayor granted them that power. And here's what I'm going to tell you. 
did it. I think he did it and his colleagues because they fully expected the neighborhood to fail. And if the neighborhood failed, they could say, we gave them everything. We even gave them the land. We gave them the power and the thing. They didn't do it. So now we're going to come in with our plan. And the neighborhood fooled them. They organized. They had elected, uh, they, they elected their, uh, their board members on an end and people had to campaign. They, every sector, Cape Verdean, Latino, black, uh, white, um, churches, businesses were all represented on the board. I was director for four years. We had a 30 member board of directors and that 30 member board of directors met the first Wednesday of every month. And I was there for four years and there was never a question of a quorum. They showed up because here's the thing that they got access to the land, but what did they do? Here's a tool. They, they, they created a community land trust. So they said, we're going to work on trying to do what we can with this land trust to build the wealth of the community. We can't guarantee the wealth of every individual, but we're going to guarantee, we're going to do what we can to guarantee the wealth of the, of the, um, the community. So that became the community's property. Not the, and individuals got 99 year leases. <laughs> Pardon me? I just said, wow. <laughs> yeah. So you got a 99 and you could renew it, but here's the, so I'm going to get right to your question. So this whole idea of gentrification, people come in developers and they're going to speculate. And because these homes, they got a lot of subsidies and assistance to build these really, really great homes and then sell them right to low income um, residents because of the, the subsidies they got. But developers said, wait a minute, we can come in. We're going to take advantage of those and build these homes. And then we're going to flip them over, right? We're going to sell them. And then that's when you begin to see the, 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 the gentrification and the, and the um, displacement start to seep in. The board of directors said, no, no, we're, we don't want that to happen. And what we want to do is put a restriction on the, the amount of profits that can be derived from the resale of these homes over a period of time. They wanted to expand the period of time that you could actually then maximize your profits on the sale of the home. And what that did, and this is interesting, it, it dissuaded developers from wanting to do that. They said, we, we can't wait that long to reap the profits. And what it also did though, in the beginning, it also made the banks wary. The banks said, whoa, 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 well, who's gonna take out a mortgage with these types of restrictions? The community talked to a number of banks and said, we think people who want to live here will do this. And so there was a trade-off. I just wanna make this really clear. The trade-off was, what the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative Board was asking the, the community is that we're not going to, we want to, we're not going to maximize the value of your property. We're going to optimize it in a way that says you're still going to reap some, you know, your wealth. This is, a, you know, this is how you get your wealth, right? Homes are the first way that people start to build their wealth. And we're talking about people who had no wealth. I mean, the average wealth of a Boston Black resident Net worth, net wealth is $8. Let me repeat that, $8. That's the average net wealth of an African-American in the city of Boston. And so what they said was, it, but so we're asking you to, to make a bit of a sacrifice for the committee. That is, we're going to put a little bit of a ceiling on the amount of wealth that you're going to be able to derive from your committee. But in doing that, we're going to stave off development. And once Citizens Bank, I think it was Citizens, one of the banks said, we will, we'll, we'll go along with you. We'll, 
they built these partnerships. They built these relationships. You had to have a lot of players come in and say, we're willing to, it was an experiment that had never been done before. And along, and because they were willing to do that, it worked. I mean, it really did work. And people keep asking me, and I kind of want to take up too much time, but they said, this is amazing. So Greg, if, if this experiment was so amazing and, and it worked so well, why wasn't it replicated over and over and again? And I kind of say, because it worked. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, and what I mean by that, it was changing the system. It was powerful and it, it cut across and it really did fly in the face of conventional wisdom. And I can tell you the conventional wisdomers don't like that. <laughs> they don't, they don't want to say, wait, wait, there's a way to do this. And what it means is changing the very way that we think about economics, the way that we think about wealth, the way that we think about wealth generation, the way that we think about community. So that was the real, real power of, of Dudley Street. And that this, and, and, and I will end by saying, and the other, the cynicism, I think that when people said they're going to fail, because they said, look at them. It's, first of all, they're low income. They can't be that, they're not that bright, right? And it's Cape Verdean, Latino, white, black. They're gonna be quarreling and fighting amongst themselves. It was the leadership of the residents, the, the resident led board of directors. And that's a big part of the structure. How do you structure this? How do you empower people? And, 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 and so I think it's a combination and that's a tool, governance tool. The tool is a community land trust. That's a tool. The tool that was available to them at the time, the best available tool for gaining access to that land was something that maybe no other community may ever be able to say that I'm going to get eminent domain. But, but the real value was you got access to the land. What tools are available to you, to you, to you to do that? It may be getting, taking over brownfields. It may be doing some other things. So that was a, it was, and it, it went over a long period of time, but I'm glad you asked the question and I'm sorry I took so long, but because, but that's the question that most people don't ask. They gloss over that. They don't want to know the details. They don't want to know the mechanics. How did you actually do that so that I can maybe learn how to do it given my, the political and economic advantages that I have in my community today that were different from Dudley Street in 1972, but I've gleaned the essence of what I need to do or what, no, not what I need to do. One of the options available to me in well, order to achieve our goals. Absolutely. Thank you. just gave us a whole roadmap for <laughs> control the land. Take, take the land, whatever options route you need to do to do so, take the, the land. The model was take a stand on the land. That was, that was the organizing, that was the mantra that, that kept everybody in. It was take a stand on yep. the land. So that, yep, that was it. So, whoo, we may not get to breakouts. We may just all talk in a big group for the next hour. <laughs> um, Shinzira, I would, <laughs> I, I just, I wanna hear what you have to say. Um, I just, in relation to that, because this is one of those like great, great examples of taking something that worked in one area and then customizing it for your community, because you may not have the same things in place. You may not have the same access, privileges, tools, resources. Yeah. Hearing that, can you talk to us a little bit about what might be percolating in your mind around like, how does that translate to working in the Virgin Islands? So I want to give a disclosure first. So I had this really deep opportunity to tour some of the community land trust lands there with Susan. And so she gave me like this history lesson 
on the development of community land trusts. And there are a few that are here, but not with the same self-determination vision and definitely not. I mean, that's going to be used again. I promise I'm going to give all credits. I will make the citations appropriate. Take a stand on the land because here, that's one of the major issues that has created a lot of problems and a lot of divisiveness because many of the, although the population is more than 80% people of African ancestry, it's not more than 80% ownership in terms of the land. I'll give a case in point, the island of St. John, beautiful island, 19 square miles, 75% is owned by the federal government, period. So it shifts how persons are even able to do any type of development, agricultural engagement. Most persons are living with their families on like landed estates, unlike uh, you know what is customary in the 48 contiguous. And there's been a drive to moving towards establishing land trusts. However, some of those interests are not with the same interests of take a stand and own the land or to make it so that it really exists for the community, the community that's here. So there's like a lot of, you know, the prices of land become astronomical. Each disaster creates another layer of just justification for the real estate industry to just, you know, things that you might be able to get for, you know, $100,000 in 2016 are now like a $40 million for the same, and it's damaged. I just want to highlight that. So there's been a thrust utilizing the, the, through the agriculture sector that works with some of the nonprofit consortia to develop and get our technical assistance in place. And I'm going to say it really kindly that, Brother Greg, I don't know how often you come to the Virgin Islands, but we would really... I, I'm saying it in front of everyone because we are really desiring that this type of connection, these linkages can help us to develop that because there are persons, we may not be the majority, but we're strong enough and we're willing enough and, and lubricated enough to see that transformation because we see how it affects, I mean, I'm a grandmother, so I see how it affects my grandchildren. You know, they want to come here and, and be able to say that they have a stake and where they grew up and most of them they don't have that opportunity so we have been when i mentioned the organization earlier succeed one of the one of the elements inside of succeed's work was the land that you see in back of me was originally about five thousand acres of contiguous land owned by one corporation outside of here and what we've been able to do is to go to them and it's taken time to at least reclaim back almost a thousand acres so that we can keep it into perpetuity for and we do our best to leave it green you know there, there's a, and i really want to know more about that gentrification because when people say gentrification here it's not a good word because it's always seen as it's going to remove most of the indigenous native ancestral virgin islanders because they can't afford those you know multi-million dollar condo villa, et cetera, et cetera. And most of those developments are usually, this is where it goes into cutting into the cultural heritage legacy. They're usually built on either native Amerindian ancestral land 
or some significant historic heritage space for some reason. That just seems to be what the developers are attracted to. And so there's been like a resistance back and forth in how we can preserve certain lands and make it so that they are, that it can be developed, again, smart growth, sustainable development, economically sustainable for people that live here, work here, worship here, you know, recreate here. You know, so I, I'm very excited to see how we can integrate because there are some, you know, there's a lot of opportunities because we're still under the U.S. flag sometimes. And I say sometimes because it's when them say so, right? It's not always all the time. So as we begin to learn and have these types of linkages and community partnerships with bridges, with the bridge programs and other entities, it makes it stronger and uh, more possible for us to meet with some degree of success because there have been small sectors that have done so, but these, you know, these hurricanes, the earthquakes, the tsunami scares, the COVID piece, like this COVID piece has really frightened people to the point that they're not even sure if they are going to even stay here. So that's another piece. So some of the persons that are usually very involved in community development here and and I, I, I have the joint privilege of being married to a contractor. So like he's ready to build like now. Mm-hmm. However, some people just want to do their own private piece. They're not as trusting. Commun- that optimal word in that community land trust is the T word. And there's a lot. That, so we were working on building those uh, relationships. So around the space of trust and understanding that even though people use diversity, equity, and inclusion like just as a trend, we're navigating it so people can see the permanence. And, and so we add to that, if we can embrace our shared humanity, mm. if we can navigate through what looks like it's the end of the world, mm-hmm. the lotus possibilities are, are, are infinite. You know? So we, we're really working on that. So I really want to thank you, Brother Greg, and everyone in this call, in this conference, <laughs> really webinar, Zoom space. Yeah, whatever we call it. Because <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I can feel you all here. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's, that's what we're feeling because sometimes we don't have the joy and the privilege of having that type of support because some people think that you're a little bit off when you're saying, well, we can get this land and we can do the farming and we can live together. So when they tell us stay home, at least you know your neighbor. I mean, you know, little things like that. You know, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You know? I hope I answered part of what you asked. You answered all and then some and sparked my <laughs> questions because that's what's happening in my spirit right now. Um, I, I want to thank you for, for that. I can't think of a better transition than that. I want to thank you for that because what we all got to witness in real time is a actual bridge connection you inviting Greg to come down and do the thing that he has learned how to do in your area. Like that is what we're talking about here. That is the essence of what we are trying to do. And so thank you for one, letting us just witness that in real time. Uh, We don't take that lightly. And two, I need to apologize. It is Dr. Chinzira. It's all good. It's all good. This is family. So they just take, my mother calls me Dr. Chen on habit. She said, I am from the South. I live in New York, but I'm a Southerner. And I respect the doctor 
on that because that was no easy feat to attain. So Dr. Chen, pardon me, Dr. Chen, thank you for closing out this section. <laughs> I'm so serious. That is, that is not an easy thing to attain. So we will recognize and honor all parts of that. So thank you, Dr. Chen, for, for closing this out in such a beautiful way. Let's jump in with group one. Please give us your talk back. That's Jen's group. Jen. I've been talking a lot. I'm going to let maybe uh, Danye, would, would you be willing to jump in on it? Yeah, no, of course. Um, we were just talking about, um, like, at first I had to just kind of thank Jen, you know, for what she's doing. I wanted to know more, like, about the soil and, like, how I can directly support and found out through it's it's through Bridge, so I'm all safe and nice. But um, we really talked, we, we, we um, you know, percolated on the facilitate the panelists just um conversation and a lot of what you guys were saying was like about like the organic nature of how we do these things and you know i found the power a lot in the relationships that you know the community built to um to to, to stand by each other and not let let the like state define what they were going to do as a community and that's that's the most powerful part i feel like that's like when people say like what are we doing exactly right now and what we can do right now instead of just talking about this very beautiful big picture is create those relationships and create the relationship with yourself so you can be open like open it's like soul work and it's hard to kind of be open and honest with folk a lot these days um because of the nasty systems we've all been socialized in but it really starts with you know each other and like having that okay what's your name again what's your name i remember seeing you and i remember seeing you and i have this relationship with you and now that it's getting tighter you know it could it could it could create exactly what we have here in this working sustainable group uh, i'm complete thank you all right that. uh group two that's anna's group who would like to speak for group two all right, I think I'm gonna follow Jen's lead on this one. I, I've, you all have heard a lot from me, so it would be nice if maybe Sarah or Morgan or Mark wanted to jump in and take this piece on. Sarah, Morgan, Mark. Sure, this is Morgan, okay. I can do it. Okay. Um, yeah, so in our group, um, we uh, none of us knew each other, so we started out by just talking about the work that we do um, and our, our relationship to the topic. Um, we talked a lot about how uh, in the new world of Zoom and um, everybody in their own homes, how do we engage the community? Um, you know, the residents who are actually experiencing food insecurity, how do we engage and how do we um, uh, pull together a movement when everyone is separated in their own home? Um, <clears throat> we talked about the role of the people taking ownership back from um, the government, which out here in the Berkshires I think is possible because we don't have a county government. Each municipality has their own um, staff. Um, we talked about also kind of starting to imagine what the next step is uh, beyond emergency response um, and what the next step could look like. And then we talked about the uh, benefit of food delivery as a way to engage uh, resonance as well. Thank you, Morgan. I would like to hear more, not in this moment, but as we're 
doing the recap, I'd like to hear more about what those steps are that y'all fleshed out. But thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, group. Greg's. Greg's, yep. Greg's group. Someone Again, as since I ejected uh, like two minutes early, uh, <laughs> maybe one of our, our team, I don't know, Natalie or Will or somebody would take it. Oh, will you? I actually don't mind doing it. Oh. I took a lot of notes. Are you no, guys okay, okay if I do Thank it? Thank you, Don. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we, we had a great conversation. I, I opened with a question about um, mortgages and, and the whole system of um, African Americans not really thinking of a mortgage as a, um, something that or homeownership being part of their history. So we got some great information on that. Um, my, one of my favorite things you said, Greg, early on was don't keep talking to the converted, talk to the skeptics. That's, that's who we really want to be addressing. A good book recommendation on the history of discrimination called The Color of Law. So really understanding um, what's behind people's stories now and, and how these systems have been developed over the years. Um, talked a little bit more about just the lack of wealth and how much that can matter to people. Natalie came in with a great question talking, wanting to know about developing relationships between our nonprofits and our towns and town government. Um, so, um, so Greg shared how Dudley Street really worked through having a strategy and saying that they wanted to have an organizing structure they set out and did a uh, 501c3, which made them a planning entity versus a development entity. So it's really important to set up your structures in the beginning, um, leveraging the laws at the time. And sort of like our last person sharing was saying, you know, there's times you're going to work with get government, but don't be afraid to resist government. That's how changes get made. So really focus on what your goal was. Dudley Street's goal was economic development. And so they kept that in mind as they worked through through things. A couple questions we didn't get to ask at the end, Greg, were just about um, the second home ownerships in our area and their land ownership and their um, rights and privileges. And then also with Will's um, focus on getting the youth and getting, you know, when you can bring youth into projects, it brings huge attention to your projects. So looking for ways um, to draw that attention in as well. Thank you, I am complete. Right. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and group four. That was Dr. Chen's group. Dr. Chen's group. Who would like to share out for Dr. Chen's group? Okay. They, they, it's my voice, just remember, it's Stephanie, Patsy, and Erica. Just my voice, right? <laughs> so, Patsy, Erica. Stephanie, Patsy, and Oh, no, not Erica. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, where'd she go? MCLA. Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. Sorry. <laughs> oh, my screen had changed. I apologize. Would so, like Stephanie. Pardon? Oh, I'm asking of those three, which of them would like to, to recap? I think Dr. Jones. Oh, I'm going to recap. Oh, okay. They asked, I was running around trying to do that because gotcha. I was gathering a lot of information. <laughs> so part of what how we started was just really suggesting that we do small projects that would mirror around what the realities are that have been experienced around providing services for vulnerable communities and shifting how we just give people food to, you know, like every two weeks to actually helping people to have the resources to grow their own. So 
and it was also to highlight working on the tone in which and the language that we use when we're speaking to people around these times of you know the COVID-19 and just all that comes with that so that it would be more humanistic more engaging and more supportive without judgment mm -hmm. then there was a conversation that Stephanie brought to the table really around just finding ways to strengthen the self-sustainability piece. Then Patsy highlighted that the importance of working across sectors. I think everyone was saying the same thing in that regard, that we, it's really important that we work across sectors and use every opportunity so that we can have that self-sustainability tone vision, action plan, and how we engage with one another. So whether it's when we're delivering food, whether it's when we're delivering resources for persons in need, whether we're dealing with the vulnerable populations or even the populations that may be set, that we still engage in, in redeveloping this humanity piece. There was a also conversation, which I thought, well, for me, was really interesting around the land that the Carter family farm excuse me, that the Jacobs Pillow um, entity is on that used to belong to the Carter family farm and just how agriculture was connected to the art sector. So there was a conversation about how all of the sectors, you know, there is that intersectionality. Granted, everybody has their area of expertise, but there's a way for us to shift our language so that it is really inclusive while we're still dealing with the diversity piece and we're sustaining that equity. The other key point that came from our conversation was, you know, what are the activities, what small projects are we able to implement now so that we can be more holistic in how we deal with this divisiveness that tends to happen around, you know, who gets what, who got enough food, who was on the list, who knows about the resources, et cetera, and how to shift that so that we can strengthen our community organizing piece by activating engagement, by strengthening our communication networks across the sectors. And da, 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 da. right, and that we need to have a paradigm shift that is regional and is definitely broader within the commu our communities. I know that was for me, so that we would be involved in the Virgin Islands way south here. I know, and then having just the humanist tone and language and communication, and that's what we should. Wow! Thank you, thank you all for that. That is amazing. Um, all of those sound like key. Uh, things that we need to be doing, um, and they're great questions. I am curious with the, we have about seven minutes left and we're gonna honor everyone's time because we know it's a work day. But I am just quickly curious, based on what everyone said, I heard a, a, a continuous theme around partnership and connection. And so I'm curious about what the barriers are to making these things that y'all just talked about happen, similar to what Greg shared earlier, like hit the, the group in Dudley understood that brown, black, white needed to work collectively. And long, long, long ago, when slaves were first freed, slave masters understood if we can get poor white people and sharecroppers to not work in community with black and brown communities, they will be less power because then it's a, it's a, none of them are receiving any of the same things. But if we tell these poor white people they're better just because, or they have access just because and then never offer it to them, they will never be a collective and do the thing that we saw in Dudley, right? And so we have a chance to, to not make that same mistake now. And so I am kind of curious about what the barriers are to doing what you all just shared. And I see Stephanie shaking her head and I just have a feeling that she has a thought on that. Um, I, 
I want to thank Dr. Um, Chizia about the judgment. But you know what? What helped bridging Gwendolyn was Gwendolyn had built a trust for this group of people, this vulnerable group. So they just automatically came to bridge. It was an automatic thing. The trust was already built. And I think, too, in Dudley, they had to trust each other first. Yes, they, they had this um, idea. They had this vision. But the trust had to be there. And in that trust, Gwendolyn and Bridge was able to build more and more people through word of mouth. They trusted the first person, and then the next person came on, and there was trust built there. And I think until we can get trust in these communities, and we trust each other, that division will go away. It will, it will slowly go away. I think that's how that's going to work. How do you, you have to build the trust? How do you, Stephanie, how do you think it's built specifically in this community? Um, first of all, you have to get a relationship and you have to be at it and be with it. You can't just do one way and then say another way. They have to be able to, what your word is, that's the word you stand by, that's what you're going to do, and the people will come to you for sure. And that's what Bridge has done way in the past. Bridge has been here a long time, and so Bridge was able to have their people come to them right away. When that COVID-19 hit, they knew Bridge was going to be a safe place, was going to be a trusted place, and that's where they went. Okay. And part, and part just to add to that, because we listened, we, we have the relationships, but we see them as ambassadors and agents of their own lives, so we asked them what they needed. And each time that we send out a distribution, one's happening right now, we, we're giving them what they've asked us for, right? We're not deciding this is what you need or these are the 10 forms or the 10 hoops you have to go through. Um, we are, we're helping them. And that means that they're also engaging in the work, right? This time, the masks were made by the people that we're delivering food to, right? Some of them have started joining in the distribution. They help us make the calls. They help us do the translations. I mean, so the, the, we really are the embodiment of mutual aid right now. Um, yeah. That is hard for some of my partners to understand that they work for institutions and systems, right? So we get scrutinized. Bridge Gwendolyn gets scrutinized of how we're doing it and why we're doing it. It can't be just attached to this structure when really we are doing, we're responding from that human-centered space. So I just wanted to add that. No, absolutely. And I, I know Greg and Don Jay had something to say. And from that end, I can just interject from the work I've done for almost two decades. That has always been our biggest barrier um, in anyone that we work with. People have someone's best, like, intentions yeah. and intentions and impact, right? Like, you can have the best intentions in the world, but if what the person you are serving does not need what you are serving it in the way you are serving it, you are not serving them. Let the people you are serving tell you what they need and then give them that. And if that, like, that is what we have to do, particularly in this time of COVID-19, like in all of our work across the board, because that has been a barrier in the last 20 years of me doing this work. Um, Greg and Don Jay, can you all give your thoughts? And <laughs> we'll close out. Very quickly, because the, the other thing, shared vision, shared vision. That was a, the key thing in, in bringing together all the diverse groups and then coming up with, there was a plan that was based on a shared vision and the assumption that organizing can be sustained with a shared vision as opposed to necessarily having to identify enemies and attacking. That could be the driver. Mm, love that. Don Jay? 
Yep. And um, just, I was just going to say, for me, at least, it'd be my own self getting in the way. Uh, so you, you really got to get right with yourself. Yes. Yes. Put your own mask on first. Yep. Fix all your intersecting places of all the isms and then work outwardly. I just have uh, to give snaps to that. Sorry. I just, I have to. That was wonderful. Well said. Thank you all so much for this, for leaning into this conversation to be courageous enough to be a little uncomfortable. Um, thank you for allowing me to facilitate it. And I will turn it back over to Gwendolyn for our last minute. <laughs> our last minute. Um, so I just echo, um, thank you. I'm very grateful that you're all here. This is New Pathways Lab number two. And that each one of them are turning out just how I'd hoped that there's connection, networking, net weaving, we like to say. So thank you very much. Um, and with that, I just want to hear one word from each of you about how you're leaving this meeting. So I'm going to start with, uh, I'll start at the bottom now. Danye? Thrilled. Ooh. Sarah? Determined. Um, Lisa? Cross-sector activation. All right. Mark? Connected. All right. Anna? Um, rooted and excited. <laughs> Gotta give you two. <laughs> I like rooted. Donna. <laughs> Inspired. Thank you. Morgan? Um, I feel um, ready for action. All right. Thank you. Will? Energized. Thank you. Natalie? Clicking. Clicking. Thank you. <laughs> Jenny. Yeah, excited to get involved in the work more. All right. Thank you. Erica. Nourished and grounded. All right. Thank you. Jen. Upliftment. All right. Thank you. Patsy. Uh, learning and growing. Thank you. <laughs> Stephanie. Community connected. Mm, thank you. Dr. Chen. Empowered. All right. Greg. All of the above. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm going to say ditto. <laughs> and Ashanti. Uh, I like all of the above. Um, Serious. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. Thank you so much. Um, I, hope you. You, I hope you come to more labs. I hope you watch all the talks. And let's go. What did I say? I said game on, right? Let's go. Game on. <laughs> game on. Thank you. Nice Thank to meet you. everybody. Nice Thank to meet you. you. Maybe we'll see yeah. some of you this afternoon. Yes. Uh, please Thank come. Preparing for Black and Brown Communities is this afternoon. But yeah. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Great. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We want to thank the Bridge Sustaining donors and organizational members, as well as our New Pathways sponsors, the Pumpkin Foundation, the Moonlight Mile Fund, Berkshire COVID Response from the Berkshire United Way and Berkshire Taconic Community Foundation, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, MCLA, and the Crane Foundation. Be well, do as much good work as you possibly can, and stay safe out there. This is our great opportunity, I think, to create great change.